Well, in Johnson City, there are no shortages of group fitness options. If you want to go to CrossFit, there are CrossFit gyms. If you are a guy and want to meet up with other Christian guys, there's F3. If you want to go to a boot camp, there's underground fitness. You can do group spin classes and other type classes at Lifestyles or the Wellness Center. But if you want to do group fitness, you can find a way to do it here in Johnson City. Well, I recently heard um, group fitness described as type two fun. And I was like, what in the world is type two fun? And they said, well, type one fun is just, it's easy. It's like watching a movie with a group of friends. Type two fun though, is the type of fun that in the middle of it, you find yourself going, what was I thinking? This was a horrible idea. I, I don't know why I did this. But then on the back end, you go, okay, I can do that again, right? And so, so think about it. If you've ever gone to a, a group fitness class and thought this is the worst thing ever, right? Think about it. You go to the class afterwards, the instructor goes, how did you like it? And you're like, I hate you. I hate this gym. I hate burpees. Will we see you tomorrow? I'll be back tomorrow, right? Like that, that's type two fun. Well, today we're not going to talk about something that's necessarily fun, but I do want us to have that mindset of something that you've been in, where in the midst of it, you're going, why am I here? What's going on? This doesn't make sense. But on the back end, you find that it was worth it, right? So think about what that could be for you. Something where in the midst of it, you don't know why it's happening, why you're going through it. But on the back end, you find yourself going, okay, that was worth it. All right, so with that in mind, let's look at Revelation chapter one. We're gonna pick up in verse nine. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. All right, so last week we kicked off this brand new series where, where we are going through the book of Revelation and we know that it's written by John. So who is John? John is one of Jesus's closest friends. He's one of the 12 disciples, the oldest living disciple at the time that Revelation was written, right? And so, so John is coming in and he's writing a letter to the church, which is, which is prophetic, right? It's intense prophecy, all right? It's apocalyptic literature. It's an intense prophecy. And he's writing it not to scare us into heaven, not to scare us out of hell, but to encourage us to, to live faithfully for Christ in the midst of a world that is in opposition to him. And so, so John says, I'm writing. Then he says that he is a partner. That word partner is important, all right? He's a partner with us in three things, right? He's a partner with us in the tribulation, in the kingdom and the patient endurance, right? So he's a partner with three things, tribulation, kingdom, and endurance, right? So, so what does it mean that he's a partner with us in tribulation? Well, tribulation is an intense trial that you go through because of your faithfulness to Christ, right? So tribulation is an intense trial that you go through because you have been faithful in following Christ. He says he is here on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's like, because I've been faithful to God's word, because I've been faithful to, to spread the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, it has landed me in exile to this island in Patmos, right? And so, so, so basically because John was considered 
a threat to the imperial cult, he had been exiled to Patmos where he could no longer influence people, all right? And he's like, the reason why I was exiled is because I was faithful to Christ. And so he considers this to be a tribulation, which means the type of tribulation John is speaking of in verse 9 is not a future event that we hope to escape. It is a present reality he's living in. All right, so he's talking about going through an intense trial. He says, I'm a partner with you through these trials that we suffer because of faithfulness to who Jesus is. The next thing he says he's a partner with is the kingdom. All right, so what is, what is the kingdom he's speaking of? The kingdom here is the rule and reign of Christ. So Jesus, he lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved. Then he rose victorious from the grave. After 40 days, he ascends to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so what we believe is that Jesus currently is ruling and reigning. He is in complete control of history. He didn't just step into history. He's over history. He's in control of it, right? And so the kingdom is his rule and reign. What does it mean that we are partners in the kingdom? This means that as Christians, we are not just subjects of Christ. We are partners, We are meant to participate in what God is doing in the world. So God is ruling and reigning, and he he has invited us to take part in what he's doing. So he's saying like, hey, here's what I'm doing in the world. I want you guys to come alongside me and be a part of it, right? And so he says, I'm a partner with you in the rule and reign of Christ. And then he says he's a partner in patient endurance, What that means is, is that the tribulation, right, is not just this future event that he hopes to escape, but it's a present reality that he has to endure, that that as we participate with Jesus in his rule and reign, as we participate in what God's doing in the world, in the midst of a world that stands in opposition to Christ, we defined that last week as a world that makes sin seem normal and holiness seem weird, right? As we do that, there is going to be pushback. There are going to be trials that we have to endure. Now, I want want to stop here today because we're going to really drill into this. For me, this idea of Jesus ruling and reigning and us going through tribulation because of it is one of the greatest mysteries in the book of Revelation. Like this is the paradox that I struggle with the most. And if you've read Revelation, there's some crazy things in here. There's a lot of symbolic things that you're like, wait, what, this is the most confusing thing? Yes, this this is so confusing for me because if Jesus rules and reigns, right? If he is in control of history and we are on his side, right? We are on the right side. We are on the right team. Then why do we suffer? Because in my mind, if Jesus is ruling and reigning and we're on his team, then we should have it easy and those who reject him should have it hard. So I I wrestle with that. Is Jesus really ruling and reigning? Does he really sit on his throne? Because if he does, why do we go through the muck? Why do we go through the hard times? Why do we go through trials and tribulations if he's ruling and reigning, right? So that mystery, that paradox of if Jesus rules and reigns and we're on his team, then why do we go through tribulation? I want us to come back to that and wrestle with that because that, that's, that's gonna be the, the big idea that we're gonna come back to this morning. But I wanna get through a, a lot more than that. So let's jump into to verse 10. John keeps writing. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum 
into Thyatira, into Sardis, into Philadelphia, into Laodicea, right? And so what we have here is a couple of things. One is John says that he was in the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, if you read books like Ezekiel, when they prophesied, the prophets would often be, quote, in the Spirit, which means prophets didn't just walk around continually speaking the Word of God. They were normal people like you and me, but there are moments where the Holy Spirit inspired them to write or to say exactly what God wanted them to say for God's people, right? So he is, he is giving a prophecy, which is a message from God through a messenger who's in the Spirit to God's people. And so when he says that he was in the Spirit, John is identifying as being a person who's in the same vein as an Old Testament prophet. So he's in the Spirit, and he says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. This is just a, a quick side note. The earliest church worshiped on Saturdays, not Sundays. They continued Sabbath worship. That's what Jews did, and the early church was primarily Jewish, right? But over the course of time, there was a shift from, from Sabbath to Sunday, which was worshiping the, the first day of the resurrection, the, the day that Jesus rose from the grave, the first day of new creation. So there's kind of this shift to Sunday. And so we see that it was on Sunday or the Lord's day that John was in the spirit, that John heard a loud voice. And it says that, that he was to write down what he saw. Now, this, this is an important piece there. He says, write down what you see. When you read the book of Revelation, we talked last week how there are a couple of different ways to read it. And one of the ways that you read Revelation is where it's more like a chronological thing, where you're, you're looking for what happens next. So some people, when you're reading Revelation, the question you're asking is, is what happens next? This has happened, so now we're looking for this event to happen. And once that event happens, now we're looking for this one to happen. So you're kind of looking at what's happening next. Another way to read Revelation is not to focus on what happens next, but to, to focus on what John hears next or what he sees next. And so the, the imagery here is like the book of Revelation becomes uh, different pictures that John sees that helps him to understand the course of church history. So think about it like this. Let's say that you're watching a football game. You, you go to a, a game, you've got your seat and you're sitting there watching it, right? So you, you, this is your, your view for the game. The quarterback drops back, he throws a pass, it lands in the receiver's arms, he hits the ground, stands up holding the ball, and he does this motion, first down, and the crowd erupts, right? Like, you, have you ever been there, right? I know some of you are like, Jeff's using sports analogies again. I'm checked out, but imagine this, right? So you've seen the play, you saw the throw, you saw the catch, everyone's excited, then the ref comes out to the center, and then the crowd goes quiet. And he goes, mic on. And they always have huge biceps. Have you noticed that? Like, like refs just do curls all day. I'm like, look at that man, right? So, but he goes, the previous play is under further review, right? And you're like, ah! And at this point, what happens is the play goes to the, the review booth. And at the review booth, they don't have your seat. They don't have just one angle. They have multiple camera angles. And so now they're looking at it from this side and that side and from this angle. And over the course of piecing it together, they can see what happened. But there's so many different ways of viewing the play than what your perspective is. All right. So when you think about what does John hear next or what does John see next, it's almost like God is saying, hey, I want to give you this angle to see the battle between good and evil, what the church is going through throughout church history. Now I want you to see this angle. And so the, the imagery of seeing it not chronologically, but as a series of windows is just a different way of reading it. So some people read it more chronologically. 
Other people read it like it's not a timeline, but it's different pictures to help us understand what's happening to the church at all times, all right? Now, let's just, let's just keep cranking through here. Verse 12. Verse 12 says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, we, we want to ask the question, like, is this symbolic? Is this literal? So what does he see? He sees seven golden lampstands. Well, real quick, jump to verse 20. Sometimes the Bible gives you the answer, which is always nice. All right, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in the right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the lampstands are what? They are the seven churches. All right, so we don't have to guess. What is that symbolic of? It's the church, okay? What's interesting about lampstands here is in the temple, like in, in Jewish worship, when the temple existed, there was the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, there were seven lampstands and seven lamps. And these lamps were meant to shine bright as a picture of God's glory. And so when you saw these lanterns, which are continually burning bright, it was a reminder that God's presence is here and that God's glory is beautiful. God's glory is bright, like in the same way that, God's, that the light was filling the room, that God's presence was filling the temple. And so in the, in the Jewish system of worship, the lampstands were huge when it came to being having an image of God's presence and God's glory filling a place. But now we don't have physical lampstands shining light. We have the church as the lampstands. That means the church has a purpose, just like the lampstands in the temple, the church has a purpose of displaying God's glory to the world. So in the same way that the lampstands and the lamps shone forth light to show the presence and glory of God in the temple, the church is meant to shine forth and to show the world what God is like, what God does and who he is. And where the temple had God's presence confined to the Holy of Holies, the church is not meant to be confined to one place. It's meant to spread throughout the whole world, which means we are to be a picture of God's glory spreading throughout the nations. Right? And so, so here we have the church as the lampstand for the purpose of showing the world who God is and what God is like or displaying his glory to the world that we're in. All right, verses 13 through 16. It says, In the midst of the lampstands, lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. All right, there's a lot in these verses, okay? Now, um, we talked last week about how Revelation spends just as much time trying to point us back to the Old Testament as it does to point us forward to the future coming of Christ. So it spends just as much effort pointing us back as it does forward. In these verses, there's a lot of allusion, there's a lot of imagery to Old Testament prophets. Now, if you were to say, Jeff, what two Old Testament books are the most important books for me to know to better understand Revelation? I would tell you Daniel and Ezekiel. The better you understand Daniel and the better you understand Ezekiel, the better you will understand Revelation. Now, if you're like, 
I'm never going to read those or understand them. They're too confusing, right? Like making it through Ezekiel is a, is a work, all right? It's hard. I've got some good news for you. All right, you guys ready for the good news? Redeemer has a podcast. It's called The Shadows of Jesus. I, I, this is not, not the best podcast out there. Five-star ratings across the board. <laughs> but um, we've actually, we're going through the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and we're showing how it all points to Christ. And so if you go back to the episodes um, on July 7th, July 14th and August 4th, we literally covered Daniel and Ezekiel. So if you could listen to this podcast on your drive to work or as you mow the yard or do cleaning, that will help you to have a better understanding of those books, which will help you to better understand Revelation. And if you're like, I'm not going to remember that, Jeff, the shadows of Jesus. And then the first episode I told you to listen to was on 7-7. That's like biblical. It's, it's, it's like the seven churches, right? Two seven, seven seven. July 7th, you can start there. That'll get you started. But if you're like, hey, I want to know those prophecies better so I can better understand Revelation, check out that podcast. All right, but let, let's dive into these verses. The first thing I want us to look at is the Son of Man. Okay, if you read Ezekiel, you'll see that Ezekiel's favorite title for himself was the Son of Man. Over 90 times, Ezekiel calls himself the son of man, the son of man, the son of man. And so you want to ask the question, why does he keep calling himself that? He does it for a very specific reason. He calls himself the son of man because he wants to recognize distance between him and God. He calls himself the son of man to recognize that he is a mortal man serving an immortal God. So for him, recognizing that, hey, I'm a son of man, was to display that he recognizes distance between mortal man and immortal God. Then Jesus comes along and he's like, I love that title. I'm going to take it for myself, right? So that was Jesus's favorite title. Over 70 times in the Gospels, Jesus calls himself the son of man, but not for the purpose of distance, for the purpose of nearness, because he's saying, yes, mortal man, humanity, I'm coming to show that I am near to them. So he's not saying that he's distant from God, but he takes that title to say that he is near to humanity, right? So we have the Son of Man in the midst of the lampstands, which means Jesus is in the midst of the stands. Now, as we read about the Son of Man, he's described as God and he's described as a priest. So when you look at his hair being white, when you think about his face shining like the fullness of the sun, those are images, once again, go back to Daniel, right? Um, to Daniel 7 in the Ancient of Days. But this is showing that Jesus is God. It's showing Jesus as deity. Why? It wants us to see Jesus as God because when we look at history, so much of history to us feels like chaos. But for Jesus, nothing catches him by surprise. As history unfolds, Jesus takes it in rhythm. Nothing is offbeat. Nothing is out of place. He is completely in control of everything that is happening, right? And so we see Jesus as God as a reminder of his sovereignty or a reminder that he is good and that he is in control. But the second description we have of the Son of Man is that of a priest. When you look at the, the way he's clothed with this, with this garment and this sash, that was what the priests would have looked like. Now, why this is so important, uh, don't, don't miss this, okay? Because this is going to help us understand the next two weeks after this, right? One of the duties of the priest was to tend to the temple. And in tending to the temple, one of the duties was to make sure that the lampstands were shining as bright as possible, 
right? So the priest would go, into the, go in and be like, hey, we have the seven lampstands. We got the seven lamps. Are they all lit? Not only are they lit, are they shining bright? Are they filling the temple with a picture of God's presence and God's goodness and God's glory. Now we know that the church is meant to have that same function. We are meant to fill the world as a picture of God's presence and his goodness and his glory. And now we have Jesus as the priest coming in and saying, I need to tend to the churches. I need to make sure that the churches are functioning as I've designed them to function. I need to make sure that as the church spreads, that the church is shining bright and displaying my glory to the world that it's in, which lends us to, or leads us to the question, okay, how is Jesus going to tend to the church? How is he going to tend to the lampstands? How is he going to make sure the church is shining bright and filling the world with God's glory. Well, there's a couple images here I want us to see. The, the first is fire, like his eyes. You have fire. We have burnished bronze and we have the sword, right? So, so imagery here, let me kind of unpack what this is. Fire in the Bible is typically about judgment. So we know that Jesus is going to speak words of judgment. When we think about burnished bronze, the picture is purity, right? Purity. So we know that Jesus is speaking from a position of goodness. And then the sword is like a scalpel. It's cutting away what needs to be cut away so that we can flourish as we were designed to flourish. But when you think about that imagery of like fire and judgment and a sword like a scalpel, what we know is what Jesus has to do won't feel pleasant. But when you think about burnished bronze, we know is that it's for our ultimate good. So this is like Helga, right? Think, think about like, let's say that your back is all knotted up. You, you, you woke up and you're like, ah, I need to go to the massage place, right? And so you go and you get a massage to work out some knots and in comes Helga. And she's six foot five in Russian and has hands of steel. It's like, will her hands feel pleasant? No, but will they be good? Yes. Right? Like, so Jesus's words are coming in like Helga's hands. They're not going to be pleasant, but we need to hear them. And so two weeks, for the next two weeks, we're going to really dive deep into the words that Jesus has for the church that we need to hear to make sure that he can tend to us, to make sure that he can correct us where we need to be corrected, where he can encourage us, where we need to be encouraged for the purpose of helping us to shine God's glory to the world that we're in. All right, verse 17 and 18. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys to death in Hades. All right, we're, we're gonna come back to this as we wrap up the sermon, but I wanna point out one thing here. When John saw Jesus, what did he do? He falls down. Okay, something that I've been shocked by in our culture is I, I encounter people that, that don't like Jesus. I'm not talking about a political Jesus that someone has hijacked. I'm talking about the Jesus of Scripture where people are like, if that's who Jesus is, I want nothing to do with him. And I've heard people make this comment, I kid you not, if I get to heaven and Jesus is real, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. And I, like, I, I, I get it. You don't, you don't like what Jesus has said and you think that you're going to show up to heaven and you're like, I'm an Enneagram 8. I'm a challenger. I've always pushed back on authority. I'm just going to walk up and be like, Jesus, I got some words to say to you. But here's the truth. That's not going to happen. No one's going to show up to heaven and quote, give Jesus a piece of their mind. 
when we encounter the presence of Jesus, we will be overwhelmed and we will fall down. All right? For those who have put their faith in Christ, you will fall down overwhelmed by the presence of his grace and love. I don't deserve this. God, you were so good. You were so amazing. I was more sinful than I could ever imagine, and I am more loved than I could ever dare believe. God, you are good. I can only worship you for all eternity. For those who are overwhelmed by the presence of him who have put their faith in him, it will be falling down in worship. But if you have rejected Christ, you too will fall down, overwhelmed by the presence of his justice and wrath. Right? And, and so I know that that's the, they're like, that's the Jesus that I'm going to give a piece of my mind to. Look, no one is going to show up to heaven and say, no one ever told me. Like, no, no one's going to get to heaven and be like, like, I didn't have sufficient evidence, Jesus. Like, why didn't, more, like, why didn't that family member who's a Christian ever share it? Like, I'm telling you, if you are here today, you are hearing the good news that you can spend all of eternity in the overwhelming presence of God's grace and love if you would trust in Christ and Christ alone. So I'm, I'm just asking today, if you've never done that, would you surrender to him today? We will all fall down, overwhelmed by his presence. It's just a matter of will you be overwhelmed by the presence of his grace and love or will you be overwhelmed by the presence of his justice and wrath? Right, that's a commercial break. We'll come back to the rest of verses 17 and 18 here in a second. All right, verse 19. Verse 19, he says, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. All right, so, so three things here, seen, are, and after. Now, this verse, um, some commentators call it the key to understanding the rest of Revelation. I struggle with that because I feel that there are two good ways to interpret this verse. And I don't want to. I don't want to go so far in one direction from an interpretation when that interpretation might be wrong or misguided. But I just want to break down. There, there are two good ways to interpret this verse that I think are helpful. Right? Maybe not the key to understanding all of Revelation, but I think that are helpful. Okay. So when it says "seen," write down the things that you have seen. Most people believe that that is talking about all of Revelation. Like, hey, everything that you've seen, write it down, the whole book, right? So that's what it means by write down what you have seen. But the things that John has seen are twofold, things that are and things that are after, right? The things that are, what are the things that he is seeing that he's supposed to write down? What are the things that are? Both views would say the things that are are pertaining to the seven churches that John is writing to in the immediate context, Right? So the things that are are pertaining to the seven churches that are in existence at the time of John writing Revelation. But the difference comes with what does it mean for after? Right? The first view would say that the things that are to come after are a future event, that there are things that are going to happen in the future before Jesus returns. And therefore, we're kind of on the lookout. Are these things taking place? Have we entered this future time and is Jesus returning soon? And so that's the view that says like, hey, these things are, the after is a future event to look forward to that will unfold before Jesus returns. The second view sees that the things happening after immediately unfold after the things happen to the seven churches. So John writes what happens to the seven churches, and then immediately these things begin to take place, which is why in verse 1 he says soon, in verse 3 he says the time is near. Now, most of my friends hold to view one. Almost all of my theological heroes hold to view one. Most of the commentaries I have hold to view one. 
I read Revelation for the first time in 1995. Um, I studied it more intently in college. And the first time I ever taught through the whole book was 2010. And up until about a month ago, I held to view one. I've recently made a shift, but I reserve the right to be wrong. All right. So I, I, I've began to lean towards the second view because of Daniel. So when I read Daniel 2 and he talks about the latter days, it looks like a future event for Daniel. But then when I look at Revelation and the way it unfolds, it seems like what was a future event for Daniel is a present reality for John. So I, I lean towards the second view. But as I was talking to my buddies, I, I've been on the phone and, and messaging different guys. We're across the board on our view on this. But here's what's really cool. My friends and I all have decided, or, or not decided, affirmed that even though we differ on Revelation, we would gladly sit under each other's leadership if we were out of each other's churches. And so what I'm asking as we study this book, maybe you're going to have a different opinion on this. I don't want to get so caught up in the obscure that we miss the obvious. And so if you differ on this, I want to say it's okay. And hopefully you can still be like, I can still be here, right? Like I might have a different view, but I can still be here. And if you're like, I can't, like, I can't, Jeff, I got this book and it has a chart and I like, you're, you're so far off. You're leading these people astray. Like if, if that's who you are, like, Ah, this like revelation and end times theology um, is kind of a third tier issue for us as a church. And so like, it's not a core conviction for us. So if like, you're really strongly passionate about this and it's a core conviction for you, Redeemer might not be the best church for you, um, but I'm gonna do my best to help us understand like maybe like here's the obscure stuff, but I really want us to focus in on the obvious. So let's, let's dive into the obvious today. Okay. So I've given you some obscure, let's get to the obvious. The obvious is this, all right. Jesus is like a priest, which means that he cares for the church. So what we know from this text is Jesus stands in the midst of the church because he deeply cares for us, and he wants us to be who he's created us to be. And the second thing that's absolutely obvious to me is that Jesus is not just the great high priest. He is God. He is in complete control, and he is good. All right. so for me, that brings me back to the paradox. If Jesus is God and he's in control, and if Jesus is good and he cares about us, why in the world would he allow us to go through tribulations? Why in the world would he allow us to go through trials because of our faithfulness to him? So I was thinking about the, this, this question, this mystery this week. I, I started thinking about my, my youth group experience in summer camp. Like, what? <laughs> How do you get there, Jeff? Um, but when I was in youth group, there was a bonding experience that happened at camp every summer that transcended the summer. It transcended youth group. It actually, it actually kind of forged a family that existed into early adulthood and later into life. Like, if you went to camp with someone, it bonded you in a way that that's just other youth group experiences couldn't. And I was thinking about that. And you know, the truth is, is there's a certain type of bonding that can only take place through shared experiences, right? There's a certain type of bonding that can only take place through shared experiences. I mean, think about it like when, when you have an inside joke and you say it and no one else laughs, you're like, you, you had to be there, right? Or think about um, when you go through um, something that requires like 
grit, where there's camaraderie, whether you joined a fraternity or a sorority and you pledged, or whether you went through band camp and suffered the heat in the uniform, or whether you went through a mud run, but like camaraderie, like that shared experience bonds people together. Um, traveling, like if you talk to someone who's seen pictures of Rome and you've talked to someone who's actually walked the streets, like there's that bond, like there's something that like that shared experience can help you have a bond that other things can't, right? Well, here's what we know. Experiences can shape character, right? So, so shared experiences bond us, but experiences also shape character. And as Christians, we should want the character of Christ to be shaped in us, okay? So experiences shape character, and as Christians, we should want the character of Christ shaped in us. And so when I think about the, the character of Christ, Jesus was forgiving. That, that was like a piece of his heart, and so if we want that aspect of Jesus' heart, his character to be shaped in us, the only way for that to happen is for us to forgive those who have wronged us. If Jesus forgave us who wronged him, and we want to have that piece of his forgiving heart shaped in us, we have to go and forgive others who have wronged us. And if we refuse to forgive, we will never have Jesus' heart shaped within us. Um, another thing about, about Jesus, Jesus had a heart for the lost, he pursued those who were far from God. So if you never pursue people who are far from God, you will never have that piece of Jesus's heart shaped within your heart. If you never pursue those who are far, like you'll, you're, that's never going to be shaped within you. You know what? Jesus came um, to, to seek and save the lost. You know what else the Bible says he came to do? To eat and drink. Like, I love that. Like, Jesus, he's like, like God, what did you come to do, Jesus? To seek and save the lost and to eat good meals, right? Like, oh, I can follow that guy. I do like that, Jesus. I will not give him a piece of my mind, right? Like, Jesus reclined at the table all the time. Why? Because he didn't want to know people at a surface level. He wanted to know how people were truly doing. And so if you want to be like Jesus relationally, you can't just know people surfacely. You have to do the, the work of saying, hey, let's, let's hang out. Let's slow down. Let's get to know each other. And I don't want to just know how you're doing. How are you really doing? But if you never slow down to truly know those you're around, you'll never have that piece of Jesus shaped within your heart. Okay? Like, do you see where this is going? Like, there are certain pieces of Jesus that the only way to have them shaped within you is for you to live like Jesus lived. All right? Now, with that in mind, here's what I want you to see. The biggest display of the character of Christ is the cross. And there's something about enduring trials and tribulation that shape that aspect of his heart or his character into us in a way that nothing else can. Let me say that again, because this, this is huge to understand. The biggest display of the character of Christ is the cross. And there's something about enduring trials and tribulation that shapes that aspect of Christ's character into our hearts in a way that nothing else can. Look, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't want tribulation. Like, I don't wake up and be like, I'd love to suffer for my faith today. What can I put on Facebook? Like, like, that's, like that's not how I wake up. I don't, but I do want more of Christ. I do not want tribulation, but I do absolutely want more of Christ. And if there's a certain part of Jesus I can only get through the hard times, then I don't want 
fear. I don't want the idol of comfort. I don't want the, the idol of ease to rob me of it. And so if the only way to receive that piece of Jesus' character is to share in his sufferings, then that's something I want to know how to endure. And that's really what the book of Revelation is going to do. Its purpose is to teach us how to endure these times as God shapes the character of Christ within us through the hard times. Look, maybe you're here right now and you're like, is there not another way? Like, is, like I, I get what you're saying, Jeff. Like, I intellectually can get it, but like, surely there's another way. And that, I'm kind of saying, like, to me, me too. Like, I'm sitting there going, like, God, I want that in my heart because it's you, but like, is there some other way of getting there? And as I was thinking about that this week, it brought me back to the cross, where in the garden, as Jesus is, is praying, what is he saying? God, is there another way? Like, is there, can you take this cup from me? Is, is there some other way to accomplish what you're going to accomplish? And in this moment of Jesus crying out to his father, pleading for some other way to accomplish what God wants to accomplish, God so loved the world that he remained silent in this moment because there was no other way. And then Jesus goes to the cross and it makes no sense. Like at this point in history, if you're just reading along in history at the cross, it doesn't make sense until he rises again. But think about that. Until he rose again, no human mind could comprehend what God was doing. Even Jesus in his humanity was wrestling. It made no sense until he rose again. And this makes me think of, there's a, a philosophical argument for the problem of pain called noceums. And um, I'm like, what's a noceum? Let's just talk about fleas, right? So think about this. Let's say that, that your dog starts to get hot spots. And you're like, what in the world? And, and he's just gnawing at his arm. You're like, what's going on? So you take him to the vet and the vet's like, ah, this looks like an allergic reaction to fleas. Have you been giving him a flea medication? You're like, yeah, <laughs> yes. Like, like, you haven't bought it in two years. Like, like I got it from PetSmart. Like, like, sure you did, right? But you're like, I don't see fleas, right? There's a lot of hair to hide in. Like, just because you can't see them doesn't mean they're there, okay? So we have is we are finite in our understanding and God is infinite, and as finite beings, when we look at what God is doing, we have a very narrow perspective. Like we, we can't make sense of everything, but God has an eternal perspective. And so just because we can't see something, like we can't see fleas on a dog, doesn't mean it's not there. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean that God doesn't see something greater. And so the cross made no sense until Jesus rose again. And what we have is the greatest tragedy in all of human history leads to the greatest victory. The greatest tragedy brings forth the greatest gift of forgiveness and a right relationship with God. And so, look, I, I don't get it, right? Like, I, I don't fully get it, but kind of like that boot camp mentality, that group fitness mentality of like, God, I don't enjoy this moment, but on the back end, you can say it's worth it. What I know of the story that we read of in Scripture, specifically in Revelation, is that on the back end, it will be worth it because the character of Christ will be shaped in us 
and we will know Jesus in a way that nothing else can help us to know him by joining with him in his sufferings. God, thank you for your word. God, we know that as we faithfully follow you, we live in a world that that stands in opposition to you. And God, we, we will experience greater persecution God, I'm, I'm not a prophet, but I feel that we are entering a season that is a greater persecution. It's only going to get worse. And God, I, I believe that you have given us the ability to endure through your word. And so God, help us to be partners in the tribulation. God, help us as a church to be partners in the kingdom that we would still take part in what you're doing to spread the candles, to spread the lampstand, to spread your glory through the planting and the establishing of more churches and the strengthening of churches. God, let your church go forth to show your glory. And God, as we do this, I ask that you would help us to endure. God, give us patient endurance in the midst of the trials and tribulation. So God, equip us for what's ahead of us. Strengthen us as your church. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.